Welcome, everybody. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. We have a fair few things on the agenda, and uh, uh, one of them for you all later will be the Vivid Festival going on outside. They'll be showing at 8 o'clock, so make sure you see that. But there's uh, much to go on before that. Um, uh, so um, let me just first uh, introduce you to the uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, uh, Shane Houston, and he will um, introduce um, our guest, Eric Soulier. Thank you very much. My task tonight is reasonably straightforward, and that is to welcome you to the University of Sydney. As we do, though, I'd like to acknowledge Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and to remind us all that the spirit of Gadigal people and their stewardship for their culture and their land and their language is alive today, and that it might take some looking, but it is alive and it is something that we should cherish. The University of Sydney is particularly proud of its evolving engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues and issues with Indigenous peoples around the world. It's a fact that most of the engagement of Aboriginal people in the global Indigenous movement has revolved around Canada and North America. And that's been the case for perhaps the last 30 to 40 years. But the reality is that if you look at our own region, about half the world's 400 million Indigenous people live in our region. And it makes sense for a university that is committed to the idea of building relationships with people in our region for us to turn our gaze from North America to those communities, countries and peoples within our own region. The symposium that was held today is one of the first efforts that we have launched that seek to build that bridge between us and people in our region. And I'd like to congratulate Jackie and her team for the incredible work that she has done. Thank particularly our friends from the French Embassy uh, for their contribution and their support for the initiative. The Vivid Festival that you are, I hope, going to stay for a little later this evening is important because in a sandstone institution like this, it's pretty easy to think that there's no hint of anything Aboriginal here. How does the university, this old, very conservative, how does it seek to value Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and peoples? And when you look at the festival tonight, that wonderful projection um, festival out there, you'll get a sense that we as an institution want to celebrate uh, with Aboriginal people. We want to value things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people value, and we want to make sure that people understand that we share these as values in common. But that in itself is not enough, and that is why I think the event today and other things that the university has been engaged in are important because it takes the art of representation, 
representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander place and presence in this institution to a very visual level with which people can start to see themselves reflected in what this university does. But that in itself is not enough. We actually have to see those reflections in the critical thinking, in the research, in the learning and teaching that we engage in in this institution. And I think that is why the symposium today was such an excellent example of thinking about in our region, with peoples, with countries and communities in our region, about the critical things that help us understand the importance of difference and how we as an institution and ultimately we as a region and we as a country can come to see difference as something to be cherished, something to be valued and something about which we should be immensely proud. Welcome to the University of Sydney. Tonight is going to be remarkable. Now I am meant to introduce Eric, but I might leave others to do that. Um, but can I say on behalf of, of all of us in the Indigenous Strategy and Services area, welcome to Sydney. We hope you have a safe journey while you're on this land. We hope you enjoy the festival tonight and we hope that after the symposium and after these discussions, you are challenged enough to start talking about the issues that are raised, not only in classrooms, not only in other places uh, like tutorials, but at dinner parties, in social settings, in other places, so that we build a narrative in our communities broadly about what it is to be different and how important and valuable that is. Welcome to Sydney. Thank you. So um, without further ado, I'll introduce uh, Eric Soulier, who is Head of Culture, Education, Science and Research at the Embassy of France in Canberra. Shane, thank you. Nick, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to do two things that uh, I shouldn't do tonight. First of all, speak to you in English. <laughs> and second of all, I'm going to flee very rapidly after my speech because I have to go back to Canberra. So uh, I feel very sorry about these uh, two things that I'm doing at, at the moment. So yes, we had a great day today because we were talking about uh, multilingualism, multi uh, culturalism and uh, that's something that uh, we France uh, we are very proud of very proud of because and not only in France and everywhere in the world but also here in Australia because we have the chance to have uh, a large French community and we have the chance also to have French Australian schools uh, I'm going to say not all over Australia unfortunately but in, in different uh, uh, capital cities in, in, in Australia and one of them it's, it's of more importance to us because it was created 33 years ago now uh, out of a binational treaty in, in Canberra. So it's the French Australian school in, in Canberra and it's a complete bilingual, bicultural school. And a year ago we had a, a first forum and, uh, and uh, the idea came from uh, all of us around the school and uh, one of us, Nicolas, is somewhere here in the, school, in the, in the room, Nicolas Gouletker from the embassy did a tremendous work a year ago because he put in place this forum. And I was very skeptical about uh, the uh, outcome of the, of the forum. Do you think really that people outside of us being involved in it are interested in, in languages? 
and the outcome was amazing because I was expecting, as I said, I was uh, uh, pessimistic a bit, uh, and I was expecting like 70 to 80 people to attend, and in the end, they were roughly 200. And it's a bit the same tonight, but this time I was not pessimistic. <laughs> I was very optimistic. And I was right, because you're here all tonight, and uh, it's full. So that means something. That means something to me. That means something to all of us, all the scholars and academics that uh, are working around uh, languages and the importance of them. And I quoted Rousseau this morning, and I should do it again, uh, because we, you have music here. And for, for Rousseau, the first language is music. And for him, it's the passion that creates languages. And I think it's, we were amongst passionate people today. And the languages are not dying. The, the languages are living. And some of the, we heard that a lot of Aboriginal uh, languages are alive again. And that's very good news. Very good news to languages like French, that is very much alive, and very good news to all these different languages that we, we have the chance to have all around us. You know, in Africa, when they, someone, an elder, is, is dying, they used to say, it's, it's the library disappearing. Because there is the knowledge of the person, there is the knowledge of the people, and languages are part of all, 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 of all this. So that's why it's so important for all of us, and for us French, but for all of us in Australia to, to really make sure that in this multicultural world, in this global world of today, there's not only one languages, but several languages, like there's several people, ideas, and that's how we'd like to see the world. Thank you very much, and I think you will enjoy it tonight, because I've heard some of these speakers, and I can tell you they are great people. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and um, do enjoy your flight back. Um, sorry you won't be with us for the rest of the evening. Um, perhaps at this point I will say a few um, words of introduction, but I might ask our panellists to just come up and take their seats. Um, so uh, Imelda, Jackie, Ernie, perhaps you could come up. Down out. And I'll say a few words of um, uh, introduction in a moment, but just to give you a little bit of um, context, my name's Nick Enfield, I didn't say that before. I'm the chair of the um, linguistics department here at the University of Sydney. Um, and I've been also, like some of you, um, t attending today the uh, symposium that you've been hearing about. Not all of you will know what this symposium was. Um, this symposium was titled Competing Voices, the Status of Indigenous Languages in the French Pacific and Australia. And we heard uh, many interesting things about various projects that are going on uh, in the Pacific and, um, and in Australia on the indigenous languages and, and on the, the, the many issues that are um, involved and a lot of the research that's going on. Now, this world is full of languages. There are thousands of them by various counts, six or 7,000 different languages. Um, of course, through history, many have come, have come and gone, so there are many, many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands that have ever uh, existed and the business of linguistics is trying to understand what is the structure of these languages, 
uh, how, how diverse they can possibly be, what's universal to them, but also the ways in which they connect with our social lives, with our um, emotional lives, um, and so forth. And one of the talks um, that we heard today, um, this was by uh, Michael Walsh, formerly of this university, still of this university. Um, uh, he um, referred to an interesting um, thing in a report from 2009 called the Social Justice Report, um, where one of the findings was that there's a correlation between strong language and culture in indigenous homeland communities and positive health outcomes. Or as he put it, language is good for your health. A 10-year study of Indigenous Australians in Central Australia found that, quote, connectedness to culture, family and land and opportunities for self-determination, unquote, assists in significantly lower morbidity and mortality rates. Which is a pretty amazing fact when you think about it. Um, it's obviously uh, a complex uh, set of reasons why that would be, but it just seems to be an extremely um, important thing. And it has everything to do with well-being, identity and so forth, and that's what we'll be discussing um, uh, this evening. Um, but having said that language is good for your health or language diversity is good for your health, there are plenty of oppositions to this uh, view which we touched upon at the end of the, the day and I'll just voice um, briefly for this um, audience. Uh, at a certain point um, Rupert Murdoch is well known to have declared that, um, you know, that language diversity was a bad thing and we should simply promote English and that was good. Uh, for various reasons this was taken to be a, an immoral one of many statements. Um, but, you know, this is not the only kind of voice you might hear. So Peter Ladefoged, a very uh, widely respected linguist, has, uh, came out, he's since passed away, but he came out um, in a very prominent uh, academic article saying, language diversity is not something that we have any duty to protect. It's up to the people who speak these languages. Um, and he, he tried to sort of be a competing voice, as it were, in the academic um, community. And um, a, a third competing voice is the one that comes from governments of developing countries. We heard today about some pretty wonderful examples of developing countries supporting indigenous languages, but there are those um, uh, uh, countries such as Laos that I work in uh, where there's a desperate shortage of resources and the government won't, uh, is, is not interested in putting resources into language development for indigenous communities when it's got so many problems with uh, other aspects um, of development. So I think there are interesting tensions here uh, between the different rationales uh, for language diversity or against language diversity, and often uh, they're highly personal. And this is one of the themes that, uh, that came out and that I hope will come out in our discussion now, that there's a real uh, emotional aspect to language diversity and to, um, its, um, uh, to its connection to things like uh, uh, ethnic and personal um, identity. So I'm just going to very uh, briefly introduce our panel members. Um, Ernie Dingo, uh, well known of course, uh, we've seen his face on our screens for many years, an actor and television presenter who's appeared in many films and television uh, programs and has played an important role in promoting indigenous equality in Australia. He was made a member of the Order of Australia for his service to the performing arts. Um, Imelda Davis, founding member of the Australian South Sea Islanders, Port Jackson, her recent work over the past 10 years has been focused on mobilising Australian South Sea Islanders and Kanaka communities to drive a national agenda for Kanaka South Sea rights and recognition, as well as revitalisation of culture and communities from the ground up. Professor Jacqueline Troy is Director, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. Her academic research has a focus on languages and linguistics, anthropology and visual arts and has much to do with the 
uh, Aboriginal language curriculum uh, in Australia. And uh, Professor Bernard Rigaud is Professor of Oceanic Languages and Cultures at the University of New Caledonia, um, Pro Vice Chancellor for Research and Director of the Centre of New Studies of the Pacific, the CNEP. Uh, so we have quite a panel, and um, what we're basically going to do now is I'm going to hand over to the panel, and each panel member will, uh, uh, will speak on the topic uh, for five minutes or so, and then um, everybody will be encouraged to uh, contribute by raising questions, uh, uh, putting your hand up, and um, there'll be a roving uh, microphone and so forth. Um, but for now, we will turn over to the panel members, beginning with Ernie Dingo. My name is Undumuru. Law name is Undumuru. Unda shield muru is the marking on the shield to identify the owner. I speak Wajari Yamiji. Wajari is my tongue, Yamiji is my nation. From Exmouth, Mikithara to Dongra on the Northwest Shelf is Yamiji country. We speak our language still, and we still cut our boys today. We still have law, we still have language, we still have culture, but we don't do song and dances for tourist mob because it's law, it's business. Summertime, you might go up that way, don't travel, pull offside the road, you might get whacked in the head by angry blackfellas because they got business on there. <coughs> We've got law business. All our laws are the same, modified in the English version today. But the thing that keeps us together in our community, we got four way. You might call it skin system, skin groupings. I'm Burungo. My skin is Burungo. My children, my mother, we all have the lineage that we belong to a certain group. And from Burungo, in the bottom left-hand corner of a square, that is related to the four that's around might be bottom left-hand corner there, but it's related each group is tacked onto it, and by connection, we have family ties from the Midwest to Western Australia all the way up to Cape York Peninsula. And it ties us in, so we belong. My mother is Baba Widara. Baba is water, Widara is long. She was born in the summertime with a long strip of water. I know my language, I know my law, I know my culture. I'm just a silly black you see on television, parrot fashion, in Wajwilawangani, Whitefella talk. How do you say yes in French? How do you say yes in German? How do you say yes in Spanish? How do you say yes in any of the 350 Aboriginal dialects in this country? You all Australians? This is what we, this language is very important. So, I love the sound of language. 
I love listening to languages come from other countries or expressions of how they talk to each other. So I'm going to have fun tonight. And being the bloke that I am, I'll take the piss out of anybody. <laughs> because I enjoy conversation. Yarning is the best way to put it. And um, language is one of those things. So um, I don't mind having a yarn with you about subjects that you want to talk about. We've got time. And, um, bypass the show outside and breakfast and here all night, bring your swag. <laughs> My grandmother delivered me an Auntie Rita's washhouse floor on a cattle station in the middle of the, um, the bush in, on the Murchison River in Western Australia. I'm no stranger to what it's like to be on the outside, especially speaking my language, in amongst Rupert Murdoch's English. So I'll leave this next one to you, sister. I'm learning my language on my mother's side, and I'd like to say to what Lanyu you, which is good evening. My grandfather was taken from Tanner Island at the age of 12 years old. That's my mother's father. The organisation uh, that I'm chairing at the moment is called the Australian South Sea Islanders. We are descendants of some 50-odd thousand that were blackbirded from Vanuatu, Solomons and 80-odd islands. As a part of that blackbirding in the 1800s up until the White Australia policy in 1901 when our families and, and forefathers were ordered out of the country, there was a language created called Islama and that fusion was of the cultures and English French base here in Queensland, uh, far north Queensland in fact. As a part of the journey with what we're doing here in Sydney is trying to reconnect with our culture, our community, our identity. When we were first brought here, there's a fusion where we were thrown on the same missions as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, Australia, all under the same Flora and Fauna Act, and therefore we have a strong kinship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Australia. A guesstimate in working with a historical advisory board headed by Professor Clive Moore, specialist in Pacific Islander affairs and Australian South Sea Islander affairs for the last 40 years, uh, is that there's 60% Torres Strait Islanders who are also of South Sea Islander descent. Aboriginal Australia is also anywhere in the vicinity of 40% descendants. We are advocating for rightful recognition still today, even though we've got Commonwealth recognition in 1994, 2011 for Queensland, 2013 for New South Wales. But as a part of this journey, we are determined. We're a self-determined board, all South Sea Islander descent, and also working with strategy teams uh, in specialist areas, such as Professor Moore and other academics, Professor Grayson Smallwood, uh, to assist us in reconnecting with our culture, identity and also our languages. It's been an honour for me to actually go back to Vanuatu uh, and reconnect with my family, finding family from Middlebush, Tanner Island, and learning those songs and dances with the women of Middlebush. The feather in my hair, and excuse me for reading my notes because I'm still learning, is Maruk, 
and that's a traditional feather when they paint your face and you get up and you dance with the women and the men taking the lead. Just recently I've come back after 10 days of supporting Vanuatu in our organisation providing five containers with the devastation of Cyclone Pam and I was immersed in my culture and with my family and it was the, one of the most amazing experiences that I videoed uh, when we were dancing on the port uh, for the Rainbow Warrior but I've, I've brought a snippet just to share with you. But for us as an organisation, identity for our children, a sense of belonging, knowing your songs, your dances, your culture, being able to speak your language is critical for our survival. If we don't have that, who do we belong to? How do we belong in this country? And everyone has a right, everyone else has a right in this country for their own identity. I see every other culture celebrated en masse. But Aboriginal Australia, Torres Strait Islanders and South Sea Islanders are still struggling for that identity and rightful inclusion. Um, I guess having a national body will assist us also in impressing on government and organisations to include us and work with us because we're open to the collaboration that's out there and the knowledge that sits in this room can be so powerful in bringing all of this to a head for us as a people in this country. Um, I might just play because I don't want to talk too long. No, no, you can talk as long as you like. So these are um, women from the Tafia province, which is Tanner Island, it's five islands, um, which is Tanner and Anawa, uh, Futuna, and Neecham, and um, what's the fifth one? Aramango. Aramango. I'd also like to acknowledge our Tana, uh, Vanuatu sisters over here from Palmer and Pentecost for being here tonight. And to know our hearts are with you in Vanuatu. It's been a devastating experience. Um, okay, I'll just play this. And these ladies are from an organisation called the Tafia Australia Connection Community. And um, they're really quite amazing in the face of adversity that they're facing right now. No electricity, no roofs on their homes, and I've visited their communities. Um, but I'll, um, I'll just play this featuring myself. <laughs> Thank you, Tomas. Right. So I was just thinking, um, listening to Ernie and to Imelda, um, it's a good continuum here. So we have a great Pacific heritage, and today we celebrated that. 
and uh, we have a great Indigenous Australian heritage, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Ernie's country, still speak language, still do business, um, have access to country. I'll never ever live on my country, it's a national park. Um, I'm an Alpine Aboriginal person, I'm Narigu. Um, all I can say in my language is Ngaya Ngamichimitong, which is, that's my clan name. <coughs> this is hard, you're right. So I won't dwell too much on the personal side of things, but uh, we're shamrock blackfellas. I think Gary Foley might have coined that term. So my ancestors are Scots-Irish and Aboriginal. My country was invaded early in the 19th century. And of course, I'm a product of that history. Um, all the women in my family have married out because we don't know who our family is. So, it, well, we do, but you could marry a cousin accidentally and that would be very bad. So, gorgeous though they are. Um, but anyway, so um, in the end, um, um, I, my group was only ever a very small group of people. Some people know about the moth hunters, the people who ate bugong up in the mountains. And um, my mother said to me recently that the other moiety next door were eagle hawk, the next door mob were crow, and um, they're all gone. So. Um, they were the people we could marry. So, um, so I represent in many ways the tail end of um, the invasion of this country, um, but I also represent the future. Um, I hope into the future that my daughter, who's 12 now, will speak our language again. As a, I guess currently I'm still the only Aboriginal person in Australia with a PhD in theoretical linguistics. You'd think I'd be reconstructing my own language, but I've worked with the Sydney mob on their language over many, many years now. And today it was wonderful to hear Richard Green speaking in the language of this area, Gadigal, Tharuk. Um, so I figure that if um, the mob who were invaded first in 1788 here can be speaking their language, then any of us can. Many of us in Australia have done that. The Garana of the Adelaide Plains are now raising children, first generation growing up speaking Garana, which was a language that had gone to sleep for about 100 years, we say gone to sleep rather than extinct or dying. Those are terrible words. No language really dies unless the people disappear. So um, today was actually about a future, a collaborative future. It's about contested, um, contested voices. Uh, this country now has English. It's very monolingual. Um, English dominates. But it's also a country with more languages spoken in it than apparently almost any other country in the world. There's almost every language of the world represented in this country. So we have a great language heritage and if we reach out to our Pacific families, <clears throat> and then indeed we were talking earlier today about <clears throat> right up through into Asia, right throttling the Austronesian Trail right up to um, Taiwan, Okinawa and Japan, we have amazing connections from Australia out. And uh, we are part of the Pacific, the biggest island in the Pacific. And that's really what today was about, sharing our common experiences, our different experiences. Um, in many ways, the French have been um, a better colonising force, a better invading force. Um, the languages of the Pacific are still very strong. Um, in Australia, our languages were brutally suppressed. Uh, people were beaten for speaking their languages. But I believe this is an experience not just in Australia but across the Pacific. <laughs> Things have changed dramatically <clears throat> and I've had the privilege of working on the Australian Curriculum for Languages and later this year with my colleague Michael Walsh who's also 
an emeritus from Sydney University, and um, Doug Marmion, another linguist. Uh, we've crafted a thing called the Framework for Aboriginal Languages and Torres Strait Islander Languages, which is part of the ACARA suite of curriculum, the National Curriculum for Australia. So when that comes out, we hope later this year, every school in Australia will be able to engage with that document and potentially develop a local curriculum for any of our languages, Yamaji, uh, my language, uh, Wiradjuri of New South Wales, Gamilaroi of New South Wales, so many of these languages that are moving forward, all the languages of the Western Desert, uh, the Arnhem Land languages, it wouldn't matter where the language was from, people will be able to teach from this curriculum, whether the languages are still spoken right through, there are only 13 languages in Australia that we, stay, we say are still in a situation where they're being transmitted across all generations, spoken right through by everybody from small children to um, elders. Um, the rest of our, maybe th 389 is one of the latest counts of how many languages there are of Australia. Um, the rest of those languages range from a language like my own, where to my knowledge it's asleep, um, to languages that are beginning to be woken up to those like um, Noongar and Western Australia, which have had an amazing renaissance, kind of caught at the brink before they um, went to sleep. So any of the languages of Australia can potentially be taught, and um, we're looking forward to that as the future. We look to the Pacific, where there are um, developing language programs in schools. We heard today, however, that it's still a struggle. The languages of Wallace, um, Futuna, you know, there are places where languages are struggling, even though they still have good, strong speaker communities. It's difficult to get resources to support these language in the, languages in the schools. In spite of the best efforts, one of the languages had a gap between 2001, I think it was, and 2013, where there just wasn't a person to teach the language in the local schools. So, you know, all languages are under threat unless governments support them. Uh, we look forward to our government in Australia supporting not just the federal government, the state and territory governments supporting language programs. We put precious little money into language programs in Australia. At one point I managed the national language program and it was I think it got up to the princely sum of about $15 million because there was money to support the stolen generations. Um, but that money had a, li you know, had a, a lifetime around it and it's, the budget has now shrunk back to less than $9 million. $9 million a year for possibly 389 languages. And, um, you know, in countries like Canada, they spend $200 million a year at times on languages. They have the same, a smaller number of languages, but roughly the same percentage of Indigenous people. New Zealand, of course, is um, way ahead. In New Zealand, it would be ludicrous for people to even consider that uh, Māori wouldn't be front and central in everything that the governments of New Zealand do. Every, everywhere there is signage, all the legislation is in Māori and in English. Um, there are school programs, there are language nests for children from when they're first born, you can get your PhD in Māori. I look forward to that day myself and I think uh, what we heard today was that even though the Pacific struggles, there are many things for us to learn from the Pacific and um, indeed we're very fortunate to have a big Pacific community here so maybe you will infiltrate our system and yeah. uh, give That's us right. more encouragement to see our languages supported too. So I'm going to stop and um, pass on to my colleague here.
Sorry, I'm speaking in French. It's good. Euh, je vais essayer de, de faire court. On me demande de faire 5 minutes alors que j'ai une communication qui était prévue pour 20 minutes. Donc, ça va être quasiment mission impossible. Well, I'll uh, try to be brief. I've been told that I have to speak for 5 minutes, whereas I've been planning to speak for 20 minutes. So, it's kind of impossible mission, but I'll try. I tried, but I would fail. Donc simplement, je vais démarrer sur une remarque pour parler un petit peu de l'espace de la République française. Euh, on a recensé 400 langues parlées. Donc c'est dire que le plurilinguisme en France est une réalité massive. Naturellement, c'est particulièrement vrai dans les collectivités françaises d'outre-mer. Uh, dans ces collectivités, il y a des langues qui sont parlées par quelques dizaines de locuteurs et d'autres qui sont parlées par euh, quelques dizaines de milliers de locuteurs. And in uh, these uh, overseas territories, there are some languages, some dozens, uh, some languages that are spoken only by some dozens of uh, people, and then there are others which have uh, some hundreds of speakers. La réalité de l'histoire coloniale fait que ces langues, bien entendu, vont euh, apparaître dans un contexte qu'on appelle diglossie, c'est-à-dire un rapport langue dominante et langue dominée, mais avec une particularité. C'est que d'une certaine façon, il y a une double diglossie. Il y a la langue dominante, le français, puis les langues locales. Mais en interne, il y a une diglossie entre les langues, par exemple en Nouvelle-Calédonie, les langues de l'évangélisation qu'on peut apprendre du primaire jusqu'à l'université, et d'autres langues qui ne sont pas enseignées. Uh, so speaking about this post-colonial situation, we can speak about uh, the phenomenon of uh, diglossia. So there is a dominant language. Uh, which is French, and there is a diglossia dominant language versus the local language. But then we can also speak of a double diglossia because, uh, for instance, sometimes we find the hegemony uh, of a local language, which is the language of uh, evangelization, uh, upon some other local languages. Alors, les politiques linguistiques sont diverses comme les territoires. Par exemple, l'accord de Nouméa dispose en son article 1.3.3 que les langues kanak sont des langues de culture et d'enseignement, alors que la loi organique à Tahiti ne dispose que les langues de, comment dirais-je, tahitiennes ne sont que des langues de culture. Quant à Wallis et Futuna, c'est une exception, ni statut, ce sont des langues de rien du tout, et pourtant c'est l'endroit où elles sont parlées par la population de manière tout à fait quotidienne, mais ne disposent dans le cadre éducatif d'absolument aucun statut, ni enseignement, ni culture. So uh, the language policies are very ambiguous. Uh, that's, for example, uh, there is the organic law of the French Polynesia that asserts that uh, the Tahitian language is uh, uh, a language of culture, whereas there is also the agreement of Nomea of 98, which states that uh, the Kanak languages are languages of education and culture, uh, whereas uh, in some other places there Uh, have no status at all, even though they are actually spoken. 
Alors, le titre de ma, de ma communication euh, s'appelle « Le plurilinguisme est-il utile à la démocratie ?» Et je vous donne ce titre-là parce que vous allez comprendre le raisonnement euh, que je vais suivre. So I've called my presentation « Is a multilingualism useful for the democracy ?» And I'll try to uh, actually tell you how it is useful. Alors, la première remarque, c'est qu'il y a une grande distorsion entre ce que les sciences nous disent, psychologie, linguistique, euh, sociolinguistique, et les représentations des gens. Autrement dit, du point de vue de la science, nous savons depuis 30 ans que le bilinguisme apporte des effets positifs dans l'apprentissage. And the representations of people. Thus, the, these um, academic disciplines would tell us. It has been 30 years that ha they have been telling us that bilingualism is good. Autrement dit, euh, aussi bien au niveau des parents, des enseignants, euh, des locuteurs natifs, la question qui se pose toujours, c'est de savoir finalement si c'est tellement utile d'apprendre une langue locale. Uh, yet, on the other hand, if we look at the families, uh, of, at parents, uh, the question uh, that is often uh, asked is how useful it is to speak local languages. Ce fait, cette, cette distorsion doit être mise en relation également avec un fait massif qui est le taux très élevé d'échec des enfants océaniens dans le cadre de l'école. Uh, and so uh, we should put this fact into, in, with relation to the high failure rate of uh, local uh, speakers at school, at school exams. Donc, vous voyez bien que la question des langues euh, articule une insécurité linguistique à une deuxième insécurité qui est une insécurité sociale. Uh, so we can say that uh, this question of languages is about two sorts of insecurity, the linguistic insecurity and the social insecurity. Le taux d'échec des enfants océaniens fait penser au taux d'échec des enfants de l'immigration en France métropolitaine. Mais avec une nuance, c'est qu'ici, c'est l'école qui a immigré, pas les enfants. So this uh, failure rate can make us think of uh, the failure rate of the immigrant children in the metropolitan France. However, here we should notice that there is one particular, uh, that the situation is particular because here it is the school that arrived here and not children. Alors on sait bien qu'il y a une vieille tradition à l'école qui est une tradition monolingue qui remonte à Louis XIV où on imagine qu'on va avoir l'unité politique à travers l'unité linguistique, d'où la création de l'Académie française par exemple. Uh, so we know that there is uh, this long tradition that dates back uh, Louis XIV, uh, which makes a national unity through a linguistic unity. Et on voit bien, évidemment, si on fait un autre lien, je pense par exemple au livre de George Orwell, que un monde où le pouvoir serait autoritaire serait un monde forcément unilingue. And uh, we can also think, uh, for instance, of the George Orwell's book where the uh, power is based upon one single language. Alors tout ceci pour arriver à la question 
qui est la suivante. On démontre l'utilité du bilinguisme, voire du plurilinguisme. Pour autant, ça ne convainc pas les gens, y compris les locuteurs. Donc ça veut dire que l'argument pratique utilitaire fonctionne de manière relativement modeste. Et les parents préfèrent enseigner à leur enfant l'anglais ou l'espagnol plutôt que le Jeu, le Nengone ou, je ne sais pas, le Léo Pomotu, par exemple. And uh, the problem that we should face is that uh, whatever good our arguments could be how about all the usefulness of uh, learning local languages, parents would still think that it's better for their kids to learn Spanish, for instance. Alors, il y a une distinction qui me paraît extrêmement importante et que les usagers de la langue oublient, c'est la distinction entre valeur d'usage et valeur éthique. Si vous en doutez, offrez un ferreur passé à votre épouse et vous verrez que la valeur d'usage ne va pas la convaincre. Uh, if you have any doubts, like, uh, just ask your spouse and you'll see that uh, this value of use is not particularly convincing. L'utilité est dans le pinceau ou le piano, mais la valeur est dans le tableau ou la musique. So you have the utility in the brush or in the piano, but then the value is in the picture or in the music. L'esclave est d'autant plus utile qu'on lui reconnaît aucune valeur. And the slave is all the more useful as long as you don't recognize any value of him. Autrement dit, l'égale utilité des personnes ne peut pas reposer, pardon, l'égale dignité des personnes ne peut pas reposer sur une égale utilité. L'égalité est de droit, elle n'est pas de fait. So the equal dignity of a person cannot be based upon an equal utility. It is a the equality that comes from the right and not from the facts. Ainsi, l'anglais, dont l'enseignement, euh, par rapport à l'enseignement duquel personne ne remet la langue en question, il est éminemment utile. Uh, that's for example, uh, English is uh, obviously useful as a language of uh, education. Il est d'autant plus utile qu'il est adossé, en général, à une logique économique. And it is all the more useful that it participates in an economic logic. En revanche, une langue native participe de l'identité et donc de l'estime de soi du locuteur. Elle pose une valeur utique, éthique, totalement indépendante de l'utilité. Uh, and uh, if we think of the local language, it's all about the self-esteem of uh, and of the identity of its speaker. So it's not at all about this uh, utility. C'est bien la raison pour laquelle le principe de l'égalité des personnes implique l'égale dignité des langues. Il faut rappeler que la démocratie est la seule forme politique qui repose sur un principe éthique, l'égale valeur des sujets. And we can recall here that uh, democracy is the only political form which is based upon the recognition of uh, equality. Alors c'est bien la raison pour laquelle tous les arguments défendant les langues locales, qui sont des arguments uti euh, utilitaires, même s'ils sont justes, transmission du patrimoine euh, d'une tradition, préservation euh, du patrimoine symbolique de l'humanité, euh, intégration, euh, réussite éducative, tous ces arguments sont juste, mais ils ne suffisent pas à convaincre, par exemple, les familles 
de privilégier leur langue native. Uh, so this is why all uh, this whole set of arguments uh, that is used to justify uh, the uh, learning of local languages as uh, true as they could be, like uh, everything which is uh, about the transmission of culture, about uh, cognition, uh, about traditions, about uh, the usefulness of bilingualism, all this is not convincing. Uh, because uh, it is based on this usefulness, which is not convincing. Alors c'est bien pourquoi il faut revenir à la notion de valeur et à son fondement éthique. So this is why we should come back to uh, this notion of a value and uh, to its ethic uh, basement. La notion d'égalité implique simplement la reconnaissance à la personne de la libre disposition d'elle-même et le refus de la violence, c'est-à-dire le refus de quelqu'un qui pourrait utiliser son pouvoir contre, précisément, cette liberté. Alors maintenant, on peut vraiment poser la question en quoi la défense de la diversité des langues et du plurilinguisme ressort-elle de l'éthique et pour, en quoi est-elle désirable pour elle-même Alors, la, la, la première réponse spontanée qu'on aura envie de dire, on aura envie de dire, c'est la liberté du sujet de parler sa langue d'origine. Mais en même temps, il faut garder à l'esprit qu'on n'a pas choisi son origine, on n'a pas choisi sa mère, on n'a pas choisi sa langue. But then we should also keep in mind that uh, we don't actually choose where to be born and uh, we don't choose our origin or our language in the beginning. Donc, si la notion de liberté est fondatrice, il faut écouter pour une fois les philosophes et se rappeler qu'il n'y a pas de liberté s'il n'y a pas d'abord la liberté de penser. Uh, and so if we speak about uh, the freedom, we should uh, remember what all the philosophers have taught us uh, that, the only, that there can be no freedom if there is no a freedom of thought. On voit bien que si on met face à face un discours culturaliste qui fait que l'identité du sujet se confond avec la définition réifiée de sa culture, et si on met en face de cela un discours universaliste abstrait, dans les deux cas, finalement, on rejoint la même position qui est qu'il n'y aurait qu'une seule façon, locale ou universelle, de voir les choses. Uh, so basically, we can find only uh, two uh, visions. One is a localist and another is universalist, uh, but both tend to uh, reify uh, culture. Alors, il y a une notion sur, le, sur laquelle je voudrais attirer votre attention. Il faut lutter contre l'insécurité linguistique. Il faut lutter contre l'insécurité sociale. En revanche, 
Il faut lutter contre le confort symbolique. Autrement dit, la mission de l'école, ce n'est pas de fabriquer du confort symbolique, c'est de fabriquer de l'insécurité symbolique. Penser, c'est comparer. Si vous n'avez pas deux éléments de comparaison, la pensée est impossible. Because uh, to think is to compare, and uh, if you cannot compare, you cannot think. Le plurilinguisme ne juxtapose pas des lexiques de signifiants interchangeables. Il multiplie des rapports possibles au monde et à autrui parce que chaque langue situe à chaque fois différemment le sujet dans le monde. Uh, so multilingualism uh, is not only just about comparing two sets of uh, lexical units. It's really about uh, alors c'est très important. Comment rendre compte de la philosophie de Descartes, par exemple, dans des cultures où le concept d'être n'existe pas La liberté de penser elle est proportionnelle à l'écart sémantique et historique d'ailleurs, qu'il y a entre deux langues. Si un Français parle italien et espagnol, son confort symbolique n'est pas très ébranlé. C'est le, le même héritage judéo-chrétien-latin. En revanche, si un Français parle chinois ou jéhou, là, pour le coup, l'écart est important et l'inconfort symbolique est important et du coup, la pensée est stimulée. So the freedom of thought is proportional to the semantic and historic differences that separate different languages. That's, for example, if Frenchmen speak uh, Italian or Spanish, it would hardly violate their strong uh, symbolic comfort about uh, their inheritance. But if they speak, for example, Chinese or Tahitian, it will be all the different story. En ce sens, j'ai bientôt fini, je vous rassure, le plurilinguisme participe de la, de la civilisation telle que l'a définie Lévi-Strauss, qui dit que la civilisation, c'est la coexistence dans le même espace de cultures différentes. So I will soon uh, finish, I promise. Uh, but we should say that in this respect, multilingualism participates in the uh, civilization, such as defined by Lévi-Strauss, who, as we know, as we can remember, said that it is all about the coexistence of different cultures in the same space. Il offre certes les conditions du dialogue dans une langue ou dans une autre, mais surtout, il permet au sujet de dépasser ses appartenances. Uh, so it offers certain conditions for a dialogue in one language or in another, but especially it offers to overcome one's belonging. Voilà, et donc je peux conclure. Le, le plurilinguisme linguistique n'est pas utile à la démocratie. Il participe de son éthique parce qu'il participe de la liberté de penser sans laquelle l'égalité qui pose la valeur en soi des sujets serait pure illusion.
and of the value of the sujet. Et voilà, et donc la dernière phrase, après vous serez libéré. Donc le plurilinguisme, tout comme la laïcité, est consubstantiel à la démocratie. Vouloir en réduire la portée ou la possibilité, c'est rompre avec le principe qui la sous-tend et en menacer l'existence même. En bref, ce n'est pas négociable. And so the last phrase, and then I'll finish here, is that multilingualism is just like the secularism. It is a consubstantial with the democracy and willing to reduce the impact or uh, its impact or its possibility is violating the principle upon which is based, uh, uh, upon which democracy is based. And so it's threatening the existence of All right, thank you um, very much to all of our speakers and what we'll do now is, is open it up and so while you're form formulating your questions, um, do feel free to jump in and so forth. I, I could just start um, just to bring it back to the other um, panelists, um, um, Ernie and Imelda perhaps in particular. Um, so I was struck by, uh, particularly in these last remarks by uh, Professor Rigo, um, by the kind of competing values of sort of the, the rationale uh, for abandoning languages or saving languages or preserving them or developing them. Um, there are these different kinds of rationales that are there and they kind of cross-cut with the very emotional uh, aspects of language that I, um, that I mentioned earlier. And in, in, the, in the symposium I talked about um, people who I work with in Laos who I think are at a very different historical stage to many of the languages we've been talking about here. So if we talk about Australian Aboriginal languages, we're talking about languages that have had a very long, uh, a very difficult time. Uh, they're at the end of a very sort of, I mean, they're, they're, the period that has gone up until now has been a long period of um, destruction and social upheaval and so forth. Um, and these, these, you know, it's hard to imagine what the issues um, would have been like for Aboriginal people at the very beginning um, of this sort of modern phase in Australia's history. Well, if you go to Laos, you'll see that there are people um, really at the beginning of this process and the, um, many of the indigenous people have not been, uh, you know, they've been sort of more or less left alone to live in their more or less traditional ways simply because the country is so underdeveloped. And this has changed very, very rapidly. And many people today are faced with this problem of, do, you know, what do we do with our language? So the people who... Own, own little... Jump in. No, I'm going to jump in mainly because of the fact that we don't have a problem with our language. <laughs> you said that we have this difficult phase when non-Indigenous people, so-called interrupted and tried to culturise us. We still speak our language. Um, you mob didn't understand what we were doing. You forced the, the language that you want to understand onto Indigenous language. Um, in Western Australia, up the Kimberley, um, during the time of the um, religion, we have an expression that blackfellas had the land and the Christian mob had the Bibles. Now blackfellas got Bibles and Christian mob got the land. And it's not 
Hermannsburg is a classic example. Kalambaru in the Western Australia is a classic example where language is important to the people. Everything about language is identifying your presence. I not only have one name, I have a moiety of a, through all my links with all my environment, both animal, mineral, and bird. My surname says that's my dreaming. That's not my dreaming. That's given to me. My totem is the red kangaroo. So when I talk about places like Hermansburg or Columbaroo, it is not unusual to have the language bastardized. We have Lutheran, German Lutheran ministers who not only speak in that beautiful German accent, but they speak to the men in tribal language. And the tribal men in their language have got a German accent. <laughs> the Irish nuns, they talk to the women about religion and Christianity. It is not after then to go and talk to one of the aunties about language from the old side of the men and you don't understand what she's saying because she's got an Irish accent. That's not unusual for us. But our language, I have a lot of people that come to the bush and we, we're going to get a school in the city and we're going to teach those kids how to give them a chance in life to teach them how to be white fellas to cut them out of their environment, transplant them in a city that's not their environment and say, well, we tried, you just don't get it, do they? Go bush. Go to the environment where it comes from. Feel the expressions of the land in the language. Not with us trying to speak French. This gentleman's perfect, he comes from there. That accent rings true. He's not bunging it on for us. But we would try and, how many times that you, those who have been to France, tried to butcher the French language in our, in our accent and wonder why we won't get served. It's true. You don't walk into a shop in France and if you don't walk in and say bonjour, you're not going to get served. <laughs> it's custom, it's law. We have the same law here. So, our language is strong. We're talking 30, 40, 50,000 years. And the mass migrations down the time has enabled us to create it to the strength that it is. If a big mob of blackfellas walked into this room and started talking and bossing your mob around, all them Canucks come out from the island, you know how big them fellas are, <laughs> who don't have any land anymore, if they come in here and just their presence, you wonder why, what is wrong with these people? We have a language, we have a strength, we have, an, we have laws and language and the whole system that you have. We don't have lawyers though, because in black law you make a law, it stands. In white law you don't like the law, get a lawyer in, they got thousands of those and change it. Who's got more money? We don't work that way. So, a language is not primitive. English is primitive. It is new, it's somewhere, but we accept it. It's like this glass of water. 
although I'm not using it, it's still here on this table, just in case. <laughs> so don't think of us out there as underprivileged. Think of yourself as underprivileged and not going out there to learn it. And I think, Nick, um, I know that we were talking earlier and uh, one of the things that I realised in, in Vanuatu in the face of such hardship and adversity, adversity was the, the language kept these, like our community. I observed these women and men and children who've lost everything and they were so strong and grounded in their language and culture and song and knowing their indigenous environment and I was like, I don't know if I could survive if this happened to me. I don't think I could, you know, because we're so culturally estranged and kidnapped. You know, it's been taken away and we're trying to regain that. But for me to observe, they're going to be okay, you know? Mm. And we can only, you know, interpret stuff from the media of what that is for Vanuatu, but Vanuatu is strong and that's why we were the warriors of the Pacific to establish this economical base in this country. Survival, you know, and that's through that culture and language. But wanting to regain you know, or learn Bislama for us in our communities is critical because that's what our forefathers had to do in this country, you know, and reconnecting with that identity, you know, that sense of belonging is, is key for us because it's a piece of the pie, yeah? It's something you can't take away. We need to regain that. Uh, there are questions from the audience I can keep going, but it would be good to get people to oh, jump yes, in. Oh, yes, please, yeah. we'd love um, questions. <laughs> There's a microphone coming round there. Oh, by the way, if you want to learn how to speak, how to say yes in any of the languages, what's the local one? Yes. If you can imagine the three letters stuck together, G W A or G O W A, Kua. Kua is yes. Waji is no. Waji. Oh, just, just in case somebody. Because I always say that thing about how do you say yes in different languages and people go, wow. <laughs> and they walk away and no one asks me what, how do you say yes in one language. So out the back. Oh, sorry. As it happens, I was in Hermansburg only last week and the principal there was very keen that the students, even though they're coming in and they're learning English as, e as ESL when they come in and they have ESL teachers who are teaching them, that they do learn English because she's very conscious that for them the power is in knowing the English mm. and that they still need to know English even if they are keeping their own language. Are yes, you, it is. And, and also the other, we were speaking with the court interpreter and he was saying that the English that the kids were learning wasn't obviously up to standing up to a lawyer in, oh, yeah. in court and the English was so different and there were so many f words that didn't mean the same thing in our English and their English. I'm just wondering what your opinion is about how, pow 
how important it is that those kids are being taught good English so that they can survive in our modern society. What, what is good English? Well, no, well, that's what, I well, mean, that's you, what I'm asking you. The, 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 the sort of English that they, could, they can stand up for themselves in our power in our power units in, in Australia? Well, the, the most common thing that my, my beef is Australiana. My beef is Australian. We have such a language here, but our kids today are not speaking Australian. The kids today are speaking American. And the bastardisation of all the crap that's coming in on television, and they do that sort of stuff, and they think they're cool, and you, know, and you say to them, um, why pretend to be black American? You're not even, they don't identify with black Australians. Native Australians and Native American have a similarity, so why don't you relate with that? And, no, we don't hear about Native Americans. Well, you just like a Native But they have this thing, about, it's a bravado thing. All the games on television these days are based around war or are based on negative and, and there is no harmony. There's no, well, good news never make a paper sell, as I was told. But teaching traditional kids to learn the basics of communications with English um, and getting them to come to the fore is, um, is a lot of fun. In Hermansburg, it's a great place because of the strength and the power that's within that community and through the religion that, is, that kept them with, within that environment. But in the towns, the, a lot of negativity is based on bush people coming to stay in town. And when the bush people come to stay in town, they're ostracised not only by the whites, but also by their own mob. Can I just put in a plug for our outstanding bilingual education programs in Australia that were all scrapped recently? And um, I believe we've got some variation on it now where you learn for five hours a day in English and then have a chance to learn in your own language afterwards, which is useful if you don't speak English to begin with, as you've just pointed out. So, um, you know. Well, back to Professor Rigo's point, you know, in the end. Um, Languages have different uses in different, um, you know, different circumstances, different um, communicative environments. So there's nothing wrong with speaking more than one language. And of course, you know, English is the language spoken most commonly across Australia, particularly for official purposes. Um, and it's good to know it, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't speak other languages as well. Um, yes, in fact, it's quite helpful if you speak Centrelink language if you uh, have to fill in one of their forms. And um, for many native-speaking, um, English-speaking people, I've translated that form many times. And you will translate it again in another two years. That's a government policy, so That's you don't correct. get used to it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and on the note of translation, I was wondering if Professor Riga could introduce us to his translator and in doing so acknowledge the work that she did and appreciate that and also acknowledge more generally the role of translators, both cultural and linguistic translators. You could introduce yourself. Without her, the communication will not be possible, as you know. No? Yeah, uh, well, actually, <laughs> actually, I'm a PhD student um, here in uh, Sydney and also in France, uh, and I'm originally from Russia. Oh, of course. <laughs>
Hello, thank you for that. Um, I'm just wondering uh, what sort of effect you think the um, forced closures of remote communities might have on language traditions if, if it goes ahead? If it goes ahead, yes. uh, politicians basically, pardon expressions, all piss and wind. They have to say things, to, you know, to direct your attention from what they're this is the left hand. We want to talk about the left hand. What we're doing with our right hand is what we're really doing. The, close of, the forced closures of communities um, is a bit hard at the moment because people, we have to do, to send kids to the towns to learn, to go to schools, closer to medical, uh, closer to where they can keep an eye on. But there's, there's so many underlying stuff that's happening with the uh, forced closures of a lot of these areas. Um, buddy, my people from Mount Magnet area in the Midwest of Western Australia had, um, had a high court decision. The judge had handed down within less than two minutes to say that the Buddy Maya people have no law, no culture, therefore do not exist. And um, within two minutes, that was handed down. So the Buddy Maya people, who was next door to Wajiri, which is my language, um, were absolutely devastated, and we have a giggle because you mob don't exist, go away, ghosts. Um, but there's a lot of uranium under there. It's a gold mine area, if you gold area that comes through there. There's a lot of minerals surfacal. Uh, under the surface, so if they, the Budimai community had um, rights to their land, then the government had to pay them royalties. Um, so, you know, it's easier the government don't pay them royalties and just tick a box to say they don't exist. So, um, which is sad in a lot of ways, but the language is very important. My sister, my baby sister is um, a grade four teacher uh, my whole family, based in um, education system, elder sister at UWA, Audrey's a teacher assistant in Grey, Donnell's a um, teacher at Driver High, Virginia works in um, um, child welfare, uh, Tanya's the one I was trying to get to, was a teacher um, on the, the link in um, um, Bulaluma, which is where the Tanami and the Canning Stock Route split before getting into Halls Creek. So we all come from a teaching background, um, something we got into because of our mother. So language is very important for not only the kids learning the A's and B's, but we change a lot of the English language and especially the numeral aspects of it all to go into Roman numerals because it defies English and they don't mind making a V instead of a five and then adding it up that way. Um, trying to teach them in an alternative from their language. But a lot of the languages are being written down, are being taped more than anything, um, so that we can get the accent rights. My language, Wajeri language, is um, in book form. And it's really hard for me to, my niece and nephews are my teachers. I will send them an email in language, phonetic, because that's the way it was, wasn't written down. And they'd send me my email back with corrections of how to spell it. Um, so language is still a part of communities. We still have ceremonies to get together for those um, interaction times. Um, but there is this big change from the bastardization of a lot of the language. A classic example is um, today if you call your partner, you call them your mardong. That's how simple as mardong. Mardong come from mardango. 
30 years ago it was Mardangu. Prior to that, 50 years ago, it was Mardangu Ba. Prior to that, uh, when I started learning language uh, 50 years ago, it was Mardangupa. So if you were talking about your secret love, it's Mardangupa. And it was And so you can't spell that. <laughs> Not that you want somebody to know that you've got your eye on a certain girl. And they said, no, they were done. And it's usually. But the, that's our thing. The, the best word that I like teaching is the word, if you could say it with me. Burt, to, op, gop, pil, la. Burt, to, gop, pil, la. Say it as fast as you can. Oh, come on, faster. Burtu Kopila. What do we say, Bernie? It's pronounced Purobla. <laughs> and what do we say? Classic example is the fact that if the bloody sand is that hot out there and you run from one tree to you've got a meeting point in the middle between one family and another family, and you they've got a tree over there and you've got a tree in the sand in the middle, you only gotta run out there and say so much before the ground's too hot for your feet before you have to run back. <laughs> so any Scottish people here? Scottish origin? Do you know what a haggis is? Do you know what a haggis is? In my language, we call it budokobla. <laughs> it's the same thing from the intestines of a kangaroo. But the sound of it, budokobla, and the fastest you can think that you can say it is still not going to be fast enough. You have to say budokobla. <laughs> I'll leave you with that one. Can I just say too, though, there is the issue of language being spoken on country and, of course, the connection between us and our countries. We say the country owns us. And I remember Pat Dodson said to me many years ago that if a language is moved right off a country, then the country becomes impoverished. So, you know, it's not just the effect on the people, but all the knowledge. So in my own case, the Snowy Mountains, the high country, there's none of us up there anymore to talk the language, to talk about the country and do things on that country in language. So that's a, a great impo impoverishment, not just for us, but for the whole of the country. Got another question? Yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to say I'm a Yurubara, um, South Sea Island woman. So my roots are from Mackay in Queensland. My mother's people are from uh, um, Tanna. And my father's um, mother is Aboriginal and my father's father's from uh, Lungi Lungi Lagoon and in, the, in Solomons in Malaita. Um, what I want to know is that I constantly um, hear people going in to, to educate Aboriginal people in schools. And I know that when people go overseas, they learn French, they learn German, to become more, you know, more respectful to the people. And yet, I've sat, found teachers that go to our countries, the different countries that we have here, who have no language, and you speak language, and you go, well, how long have you been teaching here? And they'll say, five years. And I said, well, you have no language? And I always wonder why is it that they send English-speaking teachers into our countries that have maybe three, four, five languages, and our kids speak three, four, five languages, and they use an English that is different. I don't know whether it's with French too. Does French change from African French to Pacific French to Canadian French? You know, is, is there the, the language or is there dialects of that? But to me, it makes me wonder why are we sending people and our education of our young people, they're saying, is far behind Western. And then again, when I look into schools here in the so-called Western world, 
Most of the kids can't read and write. And yet our kids are speaking three and four languages as well as English. So, you know, that's my question to the panel and also to educators. Why are they twisting it around the other way? And why are they trying? I mean, I'm never going to be white. You know, I can say, I'm Irish, treat me like, oh, no, better not treat me like an Irish person um, or English. But, you know, we can't stand up. Ernie, you can't stand up and say, treat me as a white man today. I'm assimilated. You are partly assimilated. People Why would say not? you were partly assimilated. I found out my father's English. Did you? I could be a pom. Well, I when noticed... When I found out that, that buggered the cricketer. I noticed when Ernie Dingo went to television and they had this big news coverage. Ernie Dingo can't get a job, so he says he's Aboriginal. So I had people go, did you know Ernie Dingo's not Aboriginal? I'm not Aboriginal. And it was just like, hello, I know you're not. You're Yamaji, the same as me. I'm Yurubara. <laughs> but everyone was shocked. Did you know Ernie Dingo? And I said, well, what do you mean he's not Aboriginal? That's what the media is. But, you know, I am shocked that we are not embracing our languages, the oldest languages in the world. Our tongues and this, with this English, which is a bastardised language of many languages put together, and everyone speaks a different English. We're all, even here in Australia, whether you be Queensland, South Australia, we all speak different English. Oh, them Queensland mob, they talk funny English. Oh, look, you get out. <laughs> no, in Yamaji country, yeah, WA got funny language too. So I want to know, why is it that they keep sending... No, it's, it's not... See, a lot of the... I know a lot of teachers in the desert. I know a lot of teachers out in... Who's talking to a young lady over there earlier. There's two types of people in Australia. Two types of people in Australia. And whatever you're thinking, you'd be wrong. The two types of people in Australia are saltwater people and freshwater people. Don't matter whether you're black, white, male, female, short, tall, fat, skinny, wear glasses, all got money. You either come from the coast, you come from inland. That's how we separate things in Australia. When a lot of these people go to the bush, they're not adopted yet. A lot of these school teachers go out there with great intention. They want to do this, they want to do that. They, they go out there with this great intention. They even learn to speak in the local language or therefore trying to find things. In it. But you have to be accepted. If you go to the desert and you were there to help the indigenous community, who are you? Which family in that area are you responsible for? You have to be adopted by the community. Once you are adopted by the community, you are given a moiety, you are given a skin group, and then you can work within that environment. Prior to that, you are just an outsider. Wherever you go, you can't just buffalo your way in. You have to be a part of that environment. If you come down from Queensland, you think, I'm going to take on these Sydney people. Yeah. See how you go, come playoff times. You can't do it. You have to go to see what the, who the people are and be adopted by some of the elders within the community, therefore, to lift their voice. You go in and go over the top of them. <laughs> we have an expression in the bush, you learn more by never asking a question. If you can sit down and wait for your turn to be given information, then that is the information you're given that is stronger than what you will go in there and ask questions about. I talk too much. No? 
So um, Ernie has in fact promised that he will hold court through to the, to the middle of the night, perhaps That's early in the morning, as you heard earlier on. Um, so, but but uh, he can do that after we've had some drinks. Um, however, why do um, people have to drink to talk? <laughs> well, we can. What's the, there's the orange juice. Of course, all that French wine up there is going to loosen the tongue, you reckon? <laughs> We Bloody actually have alcoholics. more, however, before we finish. We, mm. Since we've come to the allotted hour, we'll, we'll wind up the, the discussion, although we'll all be around to continue the discussion in a more informal way. There may be more questions, however. Um, Jackie? Yep. So uh, we have a special treat for you. We're going to um, see the Wurja Wurja Butterfly Dance Group. Now, this is a group of Wiradjuri women. Wiradjuri is our biggest um, language group, biggest nation in New South Wales and um, we're very privileged to have them here tonight. So you're now going to get immersed in culture even more. And then afterwards you can enjoy the hospitality. Thank you.